From Compass Media Networks, this is America's First News. This morning, with your host, Gordon Deal. A weight loss Christmas. Good morning, I'm Gordon Deal, along with Jennifer Koshenka. Merry Christmas, Monday, December 25th. Here's what we have for you this hour. If you're among those who have dropped pounds for the holidays by taking the new drugs, how will you address the new look you at family get-togethers? You're aware of the pickleball craze, but many non-players complain about the noises made by paddles. Hear what's being done. Are you looking for an unusual Christmas tradition to embrace? We'll have a list of them, including a scary one in Austria. And the different ways we're being attracted to theaters. I mean, new movies are certainly there, but certainly our old movies, uh, operas from the Metropolitan Opera are screening these days. Films that are really just kind of like targeting a niche audience, especially when it comes to religious films. Basically, what we're looking at is a landscape where theaters are desperate for what they call product. Eric Schwartzel at the Wall Street Journal on religious dramas, opera singers, and old movies getting us to the multiplex. Well, people taking weight loss and diabetes drugs feel a sense of freedom as well as a fear of judgment from family. As they prepare for holiday gatherings, maybe you're having one today. More from Alex Jannon, health reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Alex, set this up. We have this blockbuster class of weight loss and diabetes drugs, including Ozempic, Wegovi, Manjaro, now is newly approved Zepbound. And I spoke to folks who are taking these medications about sort of how they're approaching these holiday dinners. And we know that food is a big topic of conversation, and it's also sort of the main activity around the holidays, right? People are obsessed with eating and eating in excess. And for some of these people on these medications, um, most of them really, that kind of eating is just no longer possible. And so for some people, and there were mixed feelings, I think, about, um, you know, how folks are approaching approaching these holiday dinners who are on these drugs, but sort of the overarching, you know, consistent um, approach that I heard was people on these medications just don't want to be the focus of the conversation at dinner. You know, everybody's got that one family member that's sort of a food pusher or a drink pusher, have seconds, have thirds. And, um, you know, for people who are on these medications, as I mentioned, eating in excess, it, it's it's not going to be a comfortable experience. And moreover, there's sort of a stigma associated with, with weight loss in general and, and weight management, mm-hmm. um, but also specific to these medications, there's a stigma. Some family members, you know, may, um, may look at people who have visibly lost weight who yeah. aren't eating as much and make comments. And some patients are, are are nervous about how to approach that. Yeah. So what do you say? I mean, if you show up looking significantly thinner and perhaps mm-hmm. I think as one woman in your story said, I'm not drinking wine this time, like that stuff's noticeable. What do you say? You know, I think there are several approaches that I heard from both patients and psychiatrists and doctors who counsel folks on this. Um, some people say, if you're not comfortable disclosing your your personal health information, that's the bottom line. You don't have to disclose it. And there are a few ways around it. Um, one psychiatrist I talked to said, just lie. Say, you know, I'm taking antibiotics <laughs> or, you know, whatever you need to say. A, a patient I spoke to said, I had a baby this summer, you know, and so it would be normal for me to be losing baby weight now anyway. I think I'm just going to use that as a guise if anybody asks me about it. Um, Other people say, you know, I don't mind people knowing I'm on these medications. I'm happy to tell them if if somebody makes a comment, as long as it's not, um, you know, sort of a judgmental uh, approach to the question, how, you know, 
oh, somebody's looking thin. And, you know, are you are, are you taking that Ozempic? Wow. If, I think people feel in general that if the intention is good, they can be more open about it. Some people just don't want to disclose it at all. Makes sense. We're speaking with Alex Jenin. Health reporter at the Wall Street Journal. We're talking about weight loss drugs as a topic during holiday dinners. Um, how popular have these drugs become for this purpose, so I should say, for weight loss purposes? Well, yeah, so th that is a little bit harder to tease out, right? Because some of these drugs are indicated only for type 2 diabetes. And yet we know and we have the data to support that a lot of people are taking them off label for weight loss. Um, other people are actually getting them approved for um, obesity, you know, associated disorders that are not type 2 diabetes. So it's hard to tease out. But we do know that more than 9 million Americans filled prescriptions for this class of drugs in the last quarter of, of 2022. And that represented a 300% increase between the first quarter of 2020. So it's just been a huge huge boom in popularity and now we know based on, based on that nine million figure i mean that's fully three percent of the american population that yeah. that you know that's taking taking these drugs and some of them we we know certainly are for weight loss specifically because some of them are indicated for that purpose boy uh you, you spoke to this 41 year old nurse i think she is in uh, in houston this lee wrote a ball explain her story so she's lost roughly 14 pounds in one month uh, that she's been on Manjaro. And she says she doesn't generally feel any shame about, about taking the drug, um, but she says she doesn't plan to volunteer that information at her holiday dinner this year with one family member in particular who says, you know, she just doesn't believe she would agree with it. And mm -hmm. she's sort of opinionated. And I think a lot of people that I spoke to for this story had that one family member or, or a few, you know, that somebody you know who's just going to voice their opinion and and maybe people don't want people you know their family members voicing their opinions about about their body this year and they're just going to avoid the topic altogether thanks alex alex jenin health reporter at the wall street journal this portion of the program is brought to you by discover discover wants everyone to feel special with live 24 7 customer service learn more at discover.com slash credit card limitations apply well, Google says it has a zero-tolerance policy for child abuse content, but the scanning process can sometimes go awry, labeling innocent individuals as abusers. It's a story by Kashmir Hill, technology reporter at The New York Times. Kashmir, what did you find? So Google and really all the technology companies are always kind of looking for exploitative or abusive images of children. And usually they're looking for known, known images, they'll flag them, they report them to this nonprofit that then will tell police about them. And Google a few years ago developed an algorithm that can actually that can actually identify photos, these abusive kind of photos of children that have never been seen before. It's an AI that was trained, you know, learned from known images. And so if it sees basically a naked child, you know, in a video or a photo, it will flag it and report it. And they'll often shut down that person's account because they assume that they're a child abuser. And so what my story about is about is about somebody who is innocent, who kind of got, got caught up in that. Yeah. All right. So explain that. You found this uh, family in Australia, like the mom, like her, her Google accounts have been almost like completely vanished because of this. What happened? Yeah, so her name's Jennifer Watkins, and one day she gets an email from YouTube that says her channel's getting shut down, and she she didn't really take note of it because she doesn't use YouTube, but she has a Samsung tablet 
that our kids use and it's signed into her Google account and they use YouTube. And so she ignored this first email, then she gets another email that says her whole YouTube account is getting shut down and then all of a sudden her Gmail stops working oh and her access to Google Drive stops working and she just loses access to all things Google. And that's when she starts paying attention because like many of us, she kind of has her life built around her email address and just everything connected to it stops working. And so that's when she kind of confronts her son, said, what did you do on mm. YouTube? Finds out that they thought it would be funny, they're seven years old, um, to make a video of one of them dancing naked. And that got flagged, you know, as it should by this, this, this AI as something that shouldn't be on the internet. Um, because it violates the laws in most countries to, to have any kind of nudity yeah. of children that you're putting on the internet. Um, but the consequences for her were pretty devastating and she kept trying to appeal to Google saying, hey, this is my son's fooling around, you know, I'm not a child pornographer. Um, but she was really having no success getting her account back until she reached out to me. Yeah, geez, we're speaking with Kashmir Hill, technology reporter at the New York Times. Her story is called How Your Child's Online Mistake can ruin your digital life. So she seemed to, at least based what, on what I read in your story, get the runaround from Google or just kind of standard answers like, nope, it's a violation. So you get involved and then like a day later, her, her stuff is restored. Like, but it shouldn't be that difficult, right? I, I think that's kind of the point here. Yeah, and this is not the first time I've covered a story like this. You know, this has happened to other parents, you know, um, you know, uh, parents who have taken medical photos of their kids for their doctors and sent them over uh, email. Yeah. Um, other kids, you know, doing this exact same thing, doing a stupid video of themselves naked because they don't they don't realize, you know, to them, their body isn't something that's illegal, that's illicit. They just think it's a funny prank, like mooning the camera. Um, and so this has happened before, and Google has said that it it tries to uh, it realizes how devastating it is to lose your Google account and that they do have this appeals process in place um, but I think it's really challenging for a company like Google they're flagging millions of these kinds of images every year uh, and so I, I, I you know there's probably a lot of people appealing I just don't know how effective their their system is but they say they're working on it boy all right so in the meantime uh, like th this video which obviously you know, shut down the, this YouTube account and all that, but I mean it's out there, right? I assume well, it's, it's in the hands of weirdos, probably, or, right? I mean that that's kind of the danger here too. Well, Google said they actually flagged the video within seconds of it being oh. uploaded, oh, okay. and that they immediately took it down, and then they report it to this nonprofit that tracks these kinds of videos. So that video is now in this library of known images, and if anyone else ever posts it or share it it will get it will get flagged again and that person's okay. account will get yeah i mean it is quite a powerful system and and that's what makes these 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 stories tricky i think a lot of us do want tech companies doing this you know trying to stop the spread of abusive images of children but we also don't want to get caught up in it you know because we took a photo of our our kid in the bathtub to share yeah. you know with, with our with our parents that's cashmere hill technology reporter at the new york times Hey, it's Gordon Deal, your go-to HelloFresh holiday buddy. Let me tell you, these HelloFresh guys are my secret weapon for a chill holiday. Picture this, skipping those crazy grocery store lines and dodging expensive takeout. Each HelloFresh box is a treasure trove of time and savings, even for a lame-o in the kitchen like me. 
It's hassle-free with no waste, no stress. The ingredients are perfectly portioned, so I'm not blowing cash or buying too much. Honestly, it's been a game-changer in these hectic times. With HelloFresh, I'm cutting costs and still savoring amazing home-cooked meals. It's like my holiday magic in a box. Discover the HelloFresh magic yourself. Go to HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree and use code GordonFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree with code GordonFree. Delight in the taste of the season from America's number one meal kit at HelloFresh. HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree. There's a lot to disagree about in today's world, right? An unaddressed conflict between generations of family can turn nasty as we gather for things like Christmas. How to keep the peace from this morning's Jennifer Koshenka. Family gatherings can be tense, especially when dinner talk turns to dinner fights. How can we master difficult conversations and keep the peace? Some tips from communication expert Jeff Arnold, author of Leading Across the Generations. Jeff, should you set boundaries about what not to talk about beforehand? Good morning. Uh, yes, absolutely, if you want, right? So a lot of these conversations around the uh, Thanksgiving and then upcoming Christmas uh, dinner tables can, of course, quickly turn to to politics and uh, religion and other uh, confrontational argumentative subjects. Uh, So you you can agree, uh, probably on the car ride over, that uh, other family members aren't going to, but some uncle or some aunt is going to bring it up, and then therein lies the conundrum. How do you uh, get yourself extricated from it, right? Yeah, when a discussion starts to go off the rails, why is it important to kind of take a step back and pause? It's a very, very valid point and a great skill to learn. Uh, one of the, the easy takeaways that we, we talk to people about in uh, you know, communication across all generations or in difficult conversations is uh, t- two quick things, right? Um, it is quite okay to just listen without responding. Now, admittedly, this is a learned skill, right? Especially when your eyebrows furl at a disagreement of someone, but uh, uh, it's okay to listen without responding. And then I think a wise one, uh, or a wise person once said that a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So no amount of arguing over the table is going to win someone to your ideology. So, uh, Uh, enjoy the time together, try to avoid these uh, difficult subject matters if it's going to turn into an all-out argument. Jeff, is it ever okay to just completely walk away? I think so, right? Sometimes uh, uh, I'll be a little bit uh, sexist here, for lack of a better word. Sometimes it's not really easy for men to do that because it's you know, could be perceived as weak need or spineless, and so we kind of dig in and lean into those kind of things. But it is absolutely okay um, to to avoid, as we call it, a uh, a turkey dinner kerfuffle, right? <laughs> and if anyone uh, in your listening audience is still fortunate to have their their mom present uh, at these events, uh, this, make make this a special day for your mom, uh, or for all members of the family, and uh, uh, engage in uplifting and positive conversation. We're speaking with communication expert Jeff Arnold. Jeff, how do you avoid disagreeing with someone directly? Hey, I would submit to you that there are several different skill sets you can uh, employ here, right? Um, again, even the 
the, the most staunch disagreement that you might have with someone on a particular subject matter, there exists place where you can align with them. And so some of the best statesmen in the world always found ways uh, to agree with people. Even if they had complete different ideologies, they found ways on things that they could agree with. So instead of looking for the differences uh, with respect to your, con- to your question, find ways where you can agree with them on, right? Yeah, war is, if we're talking about the thing in the Middle East, war is horrible. We can all agree on that without having to take sides uh, on one of the other uh, issues, um, which your, your dinner partner may have a completely different view, especially if they're younger or, or much older. But I think one thing everyone at the table could agree on is war is a horrible, nasty, dirty event. What if you really don't don't like one of your relatives? Uh, you talk about appreciating something about that person. How can you do that if you find it very difficult? Yeah, it is, as we say, a skill set that has to be learned. Um, but I think if, uh, if you take another quick thing away, and I'll try to make this one succinct. It's part of a longer kind of a, a conversation. But seek a connection, not communication. Right, So seek to connect with that person, not just to communicate with them. And if you're communicating, you're espousing your ideas. But if you're seeking a connection, you're wanting to learn more about them or why they believe a certain way. But now all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're coming alongside them instead of adversarially across from them. That's this morning's Jennifer Koshenka with communication expert Jeff Arnold. Coming up next, what else gets us to theaters these days? Thanks for spending time with us on this Monday, December 25. Ho, ho, ho. Gordon Deal with Jennifer Koshenka. Coming up this half hour, opera singers at the movie theater. Also, no more free returns. Plus, the quest for quieter pickleball and unusual Christmas traditions from around the globe. We'll have that story in about 20 minutes. Well, across the country, theater owners and studio executives are trying to crack the question of what draws moviegoers back to the multiplex. One answer that's emerged, stuff they don't associate with the multiplex. Here's Eric Schwartzel, film industry reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Eric, what's available? You know, it's funny. If you if you look at what might be showing at your local theater, I mean, new movies are certainly there, but certainly are old movies. Uh, operas from the Metropolitan Opera are screening these days. Um films that are really just kind of like targeting a niche audience, especially when it comes to religious films. Basically, what we're looking at is a landscape where theaters are desperate for what they call product, right? Things to put on screen. And the studios aren't delivering as many movies as they once did. And so they're filling the gap with all kinds of different programming. In some cases, even TV shows, the small screen is being put on the big screen in order to fill out these auditoriums. Yeah, why do we like this? We've already seen it, I feel like. Well, I think, you know, I think part of it is, uh, is it in some cases, this is the only place where you can see some of these things. So, so for instance, there's a, there's a pretty popular series out of the Metropolitan Opera where they film the operas and you can go and see a really sophisticated, produced version of the show. Obviously, that's something you cannot see unless you're traveling to New York and seeing it in person. So in some cases, there's a novelty there. I think in others, you know, in the course of reporting this story, I went to see uh, a 25th anniversary print of Saving Private Ryan. Now, I saw that movie when it came out in theaters 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen it since. 
I certainly could have watched it at home on Netflix, but I think I probably would have been looking at my phone, having to take the dog out, you know, thinking about whether or not I wanted to get a cup of coffee. And there's something about the immersion and, and the sort of no distractions of big screen that I think some people are realizing they, they miss in a, in a world where they're constantly second screening at home. Hmm. We're speaking with Eric Schwartzel, Hollywood reporter at the Wall Street Journal. His story is called Dirty Dancing, Religious Dramas and Opera Singers are saving the movies. How about uh, the Eras tour from Taylor Swift in theaters? Has that opened people's eyes to kind of alternative programming at, at multiplexes? Exactly, and you use, you use the phrase that comes up a lot, alternative programming, right? What, what else can they put into theaters that will sell tickets, importantly, sell popcorn and soda at the concession stand, and just sort of keep people in the habit of going to the theaters? And, and the Taylor Swift Eras tour concert that has just been sort of magnitudes above, you know, the Saving Private Ryan anniversary edition, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's nearing $200 million at the domestic box office, um, oh, really setting records for, for that kind of programming. And I think we're going to see more of that. It's, it's going to be hard to imagine anything matching that level of enthusiasm, but the Beyonce tour movie is opening in a couple weeks here, if not next week. And I think, you know, talking to exhibitors, I think they're keen to get more concerts into circulation as well. Wow. This company you mentioned in your piece, Fathom Events, uh, that provides sort of this uh, alternative type programming for theaters. What do they do? What do they offer? Well, Fathom is the leading provider of this kind of alternative programming. They're the ones who are booking dozens of titles a year. Um, A lot of times it's the... You know, those classic titles like the Saving Private Ryans of the world. Um, a lot of times it's the opera. They also have had a real, a real success in the faith-based world where they are putting into theaters these religious movies that really kind of micro-target church communities. And, and I think it's important to note that these folks aren't setting box office records, but for what they're doing, they're making solid profits. And... And I think also what they're, they're, the reason that their moment has sort of come is because they're filling a gap that studios are leaving open for theaters. Thanks, Eric. Eric Schwartzel, film industry reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Merry Christmas. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. Sending back a disappointing gift this holiday season may cost you. About 40% of retailers are charging return fees this year. It's a story by Bailey Schultz, consumer news reporter at USA Today. Bailey, what are we seeing? Yeah, so we are seeing more retailers are changing their policies where if you buy something from them online, you don't love it, you want to return it, it's going to cost you now. Or maybe it'll take off like five, seven dollars uh, from from your return just to handle those shipping costs. Um, but but yeah, this this is a change for consumers who for for a long time have been used to sort of mailing these returns back for free. Yeah, why the change? Yeah, so uh, just just overall, it, it's been. Uh, lot of challenges for I think the economy as a whole and that's affecting retailers as well so this is just something that's yeah it's just not profitable to have for them to cover these retails or for them to cover these returns themselves and so yeah there's just been a lot of pressure on profitability lately as we're seeing that especially now as we're seeing demand for these sort of discretionary products are waning operating costs are going up so this is one way for for retailers to sort of help those margins yeah. It, does it mostly have to do with clothing or not necessarily? 
we are seeing a lot of this with those sort of clothing retailers where I have in my story kind of a list of some examples of, okay, here's some of the retailers you're seeing charging a fee to return. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like Abercrombie and Fitch is on that list. H&M uh, is on that list. So I think that makes sense as far as the when people order online, I think clothing is kind of a typical thing where you, you get in the mail, you have to try it on physically, see if it works out or not. Um, it, it's harder to know if you'll like a product when it's that sort of apparel item um, and you have to try it on. So that that leads to more instances where people are willing to return those items. Yeah, we're speaking with Bailey Schultz, consumer news reporter at USA Today. Her piece is called Goodbye Free Returns. Retailers are tacking on mail-in fees. So what does that mean for us as, as consumers? What, what do we need to consider here? Yeah, so I, I think what I was told by experts is just uh, this is sort of making a lot of re or a lot of consumers just more hesitant to buy products or maybe they're thinking things through more so these days before clicking that buy button. Um, and the interesting thing is overall maybe that's good for the environment where this leads to less waste in landfills from returns. This leads to less uh, carbon dioxide emissions from having to ship these products back and forth. So that's at least one positive from this, but overall for, for the consumers and from their perspective, this is a little bit of a, a pain point as far as making that uh, process a little more tricky when you're buying and returning. Yeah. Where's Amazon on this? Yeah. So Amazon, interesting enough, uh, you do have to pay a $1 fee for some returns made at UPS stores. Um, but one thing to remember with all of this is that for a lot of these stores, if you don't want to mail it back and, and pay that fee, uh, going to the store in person a lot of times is still free. So, oh, so okay. going back to Old Navy or whatever retailer you buy it from in person, that's free. Even Amazon, you can still make free returns at places like Whole Foods, certain Kohl's locations, whatnot. Got it. All right. So you referenced uh, Abercrombie and Fitch. What are some of the other retailers who were jumping on this bandwagon? Yeah. So there, there's a decent sized list at this point. And so um, if you're curious when you're buying, um, a lot of these retailers have uh, information on their return policies online. So it's easy to find. But um, yeah, Abercrombie, American Eagle Outfitters, Dillard's, uh, JCPenney, Kohl's. I'm kind of just going through the list of my story right now, but um, it's definitely becoming more common these days. So I would say if you're if you're wondering, okay, am I going to be able to return this item easily or will I have to pay anywhere from like a little over three bucks to like up to, I'm seeing $12 for some. Um, yeah, just, just take a look at that website before. Before you click buy. Thanks, Bailey. Bailey Schultz, consumer news reporter at USA Today. Fearful that noise complaints are putting a damper on the nation's seemingly limitless zeal for pickleball, the sports governing body has created a quiet category for new products and invited manufacturers to start innovating. More from Jennifer Kingson, chief correspondent at Axios. Jennifer, take us through it. Well, noise is the Achilles heel of the burgeoning sport of pickleball. Everybody wants to play, but nobody wants to hear it. And so popular has this sport become that, uh, you know, fistfights are breaking out at public courts and at uh, homeowners associations between those who want to play and those who want to sleep or enjoy their life quietly. So the noise is a big problem. Fist fights over pickleball noise? 
Oh, you bet. Uh, part of the problem, which the sports official governing body is trying to address head on, is that, uh, you know, both on public por uh, courts, uh, which are growing rapidly in cities across the nation, and, uh, uh, you know, private homeowners associations, people are building their own courts. Uh, there's, there's a big tug of war between people who want to play and they're playing with these wiffle balls and basically modified ping pong paddles and it's really loud the decibel level of a standard uh, uh, you know pickleball equipment is roughly the same it, pop 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 uh, of about 85 decibels or more which is comparable to maybe an ambulance siren or a power tool though it doesn't quite sound the same way Jeez. so USA pickleball has created what it calls a quiet category of equipment and they've invited manufacturers manufacturers to make stuff that uh, has a lower decibel output. They announced today the very first uh, racket that qualifies as a quieter one made by a startup company that was created to design pickleball equipment called Owl Sport. And today at an event in New York City, uh, John McEnroe, among others, is going to demonstrate this new paddle. Wow. What kind of racket or paddle is this? It looks like a standard pickleball paddle, only it is encased in a proprietary coating that's supposed to muffle the noise. I haven't heard it uh, myself. Uh, an official from USA Pickleball, though, tells me that what they're looking to, their kind of uh, killer app, I guess, if you will, is to create a ball that will be quieter than the standard one that's used now because uh, having a quieter paddle means that every player needs to have one. But if the ball itself is the element that's quieter, then, uh, then the game will be quieter overall. They're also getting acoustic engineers to design uh, new barriers to go, that would go around the court courts right. that would try to muffle things that way. Jeez. We're speaking with Jennifer Kingston, chief correspondent at Axios. Her story is called Inside the Quest for Quieter Pickleball. Uh, is it fundamentally changing the game at all, these changes? Uh, the, there's a balance that so far they haven't been able to find uh, pickleball, create pickleball equipment that will qualify for tournament play. They're trying to make sure that the equipment can be modified in a way that makes it quieter without fundamentally altering how the game is played. So that's an ongoing effort. But I guess the, the hope is to publicize uh, what they're doing to make pickleball quieter will, will bring more uh, major equipment makers into the field given how many pickle heads there are. Hey, even <laughs> my 23-year-old son has now become a pickle head. Who knew? That's funny. Uh, well, I, I guess that's really probably not an issue at a tournament of some kind, right? Because you know, these are in public spaces, some sort of park or a club of some kind. I, I guess the real issue is like, you know, as you mentioned before, like in the, in the middle of some condo association, right, where, I don't know, folks are playing 9 o'clock at night under the lights and others are trying to go to sleep. That's the issue? Well, that's part of it, but actually in the public courts, it's been a, been a big deal as well. Uh, USA Pickleball is offering free consultations to parks and recreation departments that want to put in uh, new courts. There's been such demand among uh, players, both for conversion of tennis courts and so on, and lots of pushback by tennis uh, players as well. Uh, but um, 
public courts have been shut down and lawsuits have been filed over this noise issue. It's really uh, a big one as the sport has has come to light. Aging baby boomers want their pickleball. It's easier on the knees, but uh, you know people who are walking their dog and or want to just enjoy a game of catch with their kid in a in a park, uh, they don't want to hear the the noise that emanates from this sport. It's a real uh, public use conundrum. Thanks, Jennifer. Jennifer Kingston, chief correspondent at Axios. Well, we'll finish with this. Unusual Christmas traditions from around the world, courtesy of HolidayExtras.com in Austria. There's a ghoulish creature called Krampus, the evil accomplice of St. Nicholas, who seeks out badly behaved children. During the month of December, you can expect to see terrifying masked figures out and about, scaring kids and adults alike with ghastly pranks. If this holiday tradition sounds like your kind of thing, be sure to check out the annual Krampus Parade in Vienna. One of Ukraine's favorite festive traditions is not one for those with a fear of creepy crawlies. Ukrainians use decorations that mimic the natural formation of spider's webs shimmering with dew. In Germany, one tradition is to hide a pickle somewhere within the branches of your Christmas tree and give a gift to whichever child in the household finds it. In the Venezuelan capital of Caracas, swaths of city dwellers make their way to mass on roller skates every year on Christmas morning. In Finland, since many homes have their own sauna, they become a sacred space associated with long-dead ancestors. That'll do it for this hour. For Jennifer Koshenka, I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Morning, America's First News. 